الله السميع العليم من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا ونبينا وحبيب قلوبنا وشفيع نفوسنا أبي القاسم المصطفى محمد وآله الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد وعجل فرجهم صلى الله عليك يا أبا عبد الله In our timeline leading up to Ashura, that 50-year timeline after the Holy Prophet's demise, we reached the Battle of Jamal. And we see that as also one of those mistakes uh, that the Muslim Ummah suffered from, in which from which Ashura eventually will come out of. And I explained what is meant by that and how Jamal contributed. Jamal broke the ice. The Battle of Jamal showed that it is okay if you have Sahaba on either side, on both sides of a war, of a battle, then that battle is justified, is understandable at least. Um, it's not going to be the right thing to do maybe, but it's understandable and can be overlooked. Um, and this gave the excuse to a person like Muawiyah, it's as if he was copy-pasting. Maybe this was his idea from the get-go to do something like this, but the people of Jamal beat him to it. God knows best. But what's for sure is, till now, brothers and sisters, from the beginning of our journey in these um, days and nights that we've been uh, speaking about this timeline leading up to Ashura, all of these events, all of these milestones that took place that we feel contributed to eventually Ashura happening, contributed uh, sequentially in the sense that the first happened, then the second happened, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, each of them, yes, um, put its foot on the previous step that was provided by the previous event. And so each of these uh, come hand in hand. Now each of these events that are working hand in hand and pushing the Muslim Ummah more and more towards something like Ashura taking place, when we look at this timeline till the battle of Jamal, you don't find the Bani Umayyah really exhibiting any skill. They're just sitting back as if, and the Muslim Ummah is making mistake after mistake after mistake. But once, once the Muslim Ummah becomes vulnerable enough and ready enough, that is when Banu Umayyah, now they start actively getting involved and actively doing things and actively exhibiting the skill that they have. And when I say Bani Umayyah here, of course, um, you will find that the Muawiyah is the one spearheading all of this. And so Muawiyah shows us the skill that he has. From here on, brothers and sisters, it's going to be skill. Before this, it was luck. Before this, if Banu Umayyah, it was a dream for them maybe, a very far-fetched dream, to take power and have authority all over all the Muslim lands. Now that dream seems a little bit more reachable and feasible. Yeah, and so here, from here on, the battle of Safin, when, when it takes place, this is not luck anymore. If Saqifah took place, if the second Khalifa was chosen without consultation, if the third Khalifa was chosen by a six-person council, the way it went that we, dis we described before, if all of this, if the second Khalifa put Muawiyah in power, 
It's not that Muawiyah was pulling any strings, at least not directly. Um, and what we find in the history books, you don't find that Muawiyah really had anything to do with that. It was all a matter of, and I call it this, a matter of luck. One after another, mistakes were made. But here, from here on, even till the Battle of Jamal, it was luck. Yes, there are, um, there is evidence that Muawiyah was pulling some strings even in the Battle of Jamal. But in the end, if it was not the mistake of, and I say mistake because everyone says that uh, the wife of the Prophet was mistaken in this and she was regretful later. And we talked about this yesterday. If this mistake happened, even the Battle of Jamal was a mistake that happened. And direct, the Banu Umayyah and Muawiyah were not directly involved in that. But from here on now, Safin onwards, teaches us that if the Muslim Ummah makes enough mistakes, the enemies of Islam can capitalize. The enemies of Islam will eventually do what they need to do. And this is something for today as well. Yes, as in you see that a lot of mistakes are being made by the countries now that claim to be, whether it is the uh, custodians of the Haramain al-Sharifain and other countries. You find that mistake after mistake, before you know it, the enemies of Islam are shaking your hand and are friends with you and best buddies with you now. Anyway, the battle of Safin now can take place because Jamal allows for this now. Jamal has broken that ice, as I said. So Safin takes place. Battle of Safin is very famous. You can find it online. Speakers have spoken about it. Yes, you find uh, literature on it and articles on it online as well. I don't want to get into those details at all. I want to go really quickly, just very quickly go through it, what happened and get to the more important parts, which are the arbitration and what happens uh, after this arbitration. How and how the Battle of Safin plays that major role in Ashura taking place because now Bani Umayyah slowly are gaining even more power. Remember this, brothers and sisters, if Ashura takes place, it's because Banu Umayyah eventually take hold of power completely, all right? Safin is really one of those main building blocks in this building of the power of Banu Umayyah. All right, and I wanna say this as well, Muawiyah took a risk, yeah? And that's why he's so skillful, it seems. That's why he kinda of knows what he's doing. He feels like this is a risk to be taken. And so the Battle of Safin took, takes place. What is it, long story short, they sent Uthman's bloody shirt that he had been killed in. Uh, some say the sister of Muawiyah, Um Habiba, sent it. Some say, no, it was uh, the wife of Uthman. They send the bloody shirt of Uthman to Muawiyah in Sham. And he hangs it there for the people to see. And they killed my cousin. I'm the one who has to avenge him because he's my cousin. I'm his blood relative. While, of course, the sons of Uthman are still in Medina. If, if there's any waliyuddam, they call it, it's them in Medina. You're a distant cousin, so what are you talking about? But anyway, this was an excuse. And so the, the, the shirt of Uthman becomes an excuse now. It becomes that symbol that you can use to do whatever you want to do. Imam Ali, give me the killers of Uthman. I want to avenge his death. Ali ibn Abi Talib says, look, first give me bay'ah. Let things settle down, we'll figure things out. But right now is not the time. I am the Khalifa, everyone knows I'm the Khalifa. No, I'm not going to give you bay'ah. 
until you give me the killers of Uthman. Look, well, at, if you're gonna, if you're not gonna give bay'ah, and you're the one, you're a ruler, you're a governor of one of the most strategic, most important lands of the Muslim world, which is the Shamat and the and Greater Sham. Then uh, I'm sorry, but you have to step down. I'm not gonna step down. Okay, then the Battle of Safin takes place. The army of Sham versus the army of Iraq. In other words, the army of Muawiyah versus the, the army of Ali ibn Abi Talib. This battle goes on for a long time. And they say 45,000 people die on Muawiyah's side. 25,000 die on uh, Imam Ali's side, alayhi salam. 70,000 brothers and sisters, souls. 70,000 lives are lost because of the Battle of Safin. Now here, something important happens. And when we talk about the Battle of Safin, yeah, there's a lot of details that we're not covering. There's one detail that is very, very important that helps us understand why Ashura took place. And that is the arbitration, the at-tahkim, they call it, or hakamiyah. What is going on with this? Well, as things get tougher and tougher and worse and worse for the army of Sham and Muawiyah and Amr bin al-As, there's two points here. There's two viewpoints and perspectives here. Some say who those who uh, really want to defend Muawiyah, they'll say that, yeah, Muawiyah and the rest of the Shamites, they notice that, okay, a lot of lives are being lost. And so we need to stop this. This is enough is enough. Like this is just too much. In other words, as if we didn't want it to reach this point. Okay. Just like how in the battle of Jamal, they say that uh, the wife of the prophet, she didn't want it to reach the point where there was a battle, but eventually did. And we said that, look, if mistakes are made, the repercussions will come with it. The baggage will come here as well. If you're upset, then you shouldn't have let it reach this point to begin with, that two armies are going to come close to each other to begin with. When two armies come close to each other, it can get very dangerous and can get out of hand. But anyway, the ones who want to defend Muawiyah, they'll say, Muawiyah saw that a lot of people are dying and this is not good. Let us speak to Ali ibn Abi Talib and have the Qur'an be the judge between us. Let's see what the Qur'an says in a, in a case like this. Okay. And so they come out with the Qur'ans on the spears. Now some people think that they were trying to disrespect the spears, that's why the Qur'an, and that's why they were putting these Qur'ans and Masahif on the spears. No, no, no. It's not that they were disrespecting it, they were, they were tying these Qur'ans, they say, to the spears so they can, rise, they can be risen up high so everyone sees, from the army of Imam Ali even, السلام, the people see that, look, we believe in the Qur'an like you. That is the version of the story that uh, people who want to defend Muawiyah will tell us. But others will say no. The ones who don't have a bias towards Muawiyah, they'll say no. Malik al-Ashtar, the army of Ali ibn Abi Talib, got so close to defeating the army of Sham. And Malik al-Ashtar can see the tent of Muawiyah and is getting closer and closer and, is, and wants to finish the job of Muawiyah. This is when they, they felt like, okay, we have to figure something out. And this is where Amr bin al-As comes up with that master plan of the Qur'ans. So it's not that they felt sorry for the people necessarily. It's that they felt like they're going to die now. They're in trouble. And so they come out with the Qur'ans. And then the, what happens here is the people that are with Imam Ali, they say, whoa, whoa, we thought we we're fighting people who don't believe in Qur'an. These people, they believe in Qur'an. So let's, let's judge by the Qur'an between us. Imam Ali says, come on, people. This is a deception. This is something that they, they're just saying, but they don't believe in it. 
But unfortunately, there are very simple, naive people in that army of his, 20,000 some reports say, surround Ali ibn Abi Talib, they say, look, if you don't stop the war right now and stop Malik al-Ashtar, then we will kill you. And there are details about this as well in Nahj al-Balagha, I don't have time to get into, about what Ali ibn Abi Talib says about whether he feared for his life or not. There are details there, I, I can't get into right now. All right, so Ali ibn Abi Talib has to stop Malik al-Ashtar. Malik al-Ashtar doesn't want to stop, but then Ali says, look, now you got to listen, man, or else they are going to kill me. And so Malik al-Ashtar also stops and the war comes to a halt. And so now they're like, okay, what are we supposed to do? Yes, we have to have a representative from Muawiyah's side, representative from Imam Ali's side, end the war right now because we all believe in the Quran. End the war, let these representatives get together and decide on what we're supposed to do. This is not the way to go. This is, bloodshed is not the way to go. <laughs> they should have said that from day one, not now. Anyway, Ali ibn Talib says, fine. I mean, you leave me no choice. If it's up to me, I say, destroy the fitna. And, and the fitna lies in Muawiyah and, and the Shamites. Let's get rid of them. But if you're forcing me now, okay, this is going to be my representative. Malik al-Ashtar, they say no. One of the main guys is uh, Ash'ath bin Qais, unfortunately, who was on Imam Ali's side. No. What about Ibn Abbas? No. These loyal companions of Imam Ali, Imam Ali suggests them, they say no. Okay then, who? Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. Once again, the details of all of this and how Abu Musa is, what type of person he is, you can find um, the information for that um, elsewhere. They choose Amr bin al-As. So it's Amr bin al-As representing Sham and Abu Musa al-Ash'ari representing Ali ibn Abi Talib And so the two armies go back. Eight months later, because the battle of Safin, or maybe less than eight months, it started in Safar, they say. And so how long it went for? It went for a long period of time. After that, months later, so it's less than eight months. Months later, in Ramadan of that year, year 37 after Hijrah, these representatives are, to get, are supposed to get together to decide. All right, so what happens is, you were this close to getting rid of the fitna from the root, yes, and uprooting the problem. But now the problem is back in Sham, yes, rejuvenating and going back to the drawing board. All right. So in this arbitration, the outcome of it, okay, once again, there are a lot of details. I will leave that to the brothers and sisters to go and research themselves. But there's one thing, what is the outcome of the arbitration? The outcome is this, that once again, the ones who want to defend Muawiyah, don't want to uh, make it seem like Amr bin al-As was a very bad person. They'll say that, yes, they came together with Abu Musa al-Ash'ari and they came to the conclusion that will keep Muawiyah in Sham as the Amir of Sham and Governor of Sham, Ruler of Sham, Ali ibn Talib will remain the Khalifa to al-Muslimin. So he's an Amir and this one is a Khalifa of the Muslimin. Others say they didn't really come to a proper conclusion and you know the Khawarij and the fitna of the Khawarij happened and just things were forgotten and lost. Now others though who don't have that bias towards Muawiyah, <coughs> including the Shia school of thought, they'll say that, that there's other reports from people that we find we can follow, who will say that, no, no, no. Um, and you'll find these reports in At-Tabari, but the ones who are biased towards Muawiyah, they won't accept these reports. And they'll say they are weak because of the chains of narrators. Um, and that's their, that's, those are their standards. We have our standards. And so the reports say that, no, it was much more than this. Amr bin al-As 
fools Abu Musa al-Ash'ari and takes Khilafa and says Muawiyah from this day forward is the Khalifatul Muslimin. Now whichever of these two reports you take, whether it is we, they keep Muawiyah as Amir of Sham and Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, as Khalifatul Muslimin, or if you just take it the way the, Shi, the, the mainstream Shia school says that, no, they even said we want Khilafah for Muawiyah and uh, Ali is stripped of his Khilafah. Whichever of the two you take, brothers and sisters, the problem is still there. Muawiyah is there in Sham and he has at least power over Sham. Yes, it's his own kind of sovereign state that he takes care of. Ali ibn Abi Talib has nothing to do with that part of the Muslim lands anymore. And this is going to be a problem. And I've explained this before that when you have somebody ruling over a certain part of the Muslim lands, they can, they can train and upbring the people the way they want and give them a religion, a version of the religion that is in line with their perspective of things. Anyway, this is brothers and sisters, this is all skill now. There's no more luck involved here. They got lucky in Saqifa that Haq didn't go to where it was supposed to go. And then after that, with the second Khalifa coming in power, third Khalifa coming in power, Muawiyah coming to power in Sham even, in, from the beginning, during Omar's time. All of this was luck. All the way to Jamal was luck. But when you make enough mistakes, then the ones who have the skills, when the time is right, they will pounce. And so here in Safin, this is exactly what happened. It was a risky one though. We have to give this to Muawiyah, you took a risk but you felt like the risk is a reasonable one and you were about to lose this, 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 what you were gambling on, but you eventually came out victorious because the least is that you retained power over Sham to the point that now everyone knows, everyone says, okay, this was the result of the arbitration. And so Ali السلام, has to also abide by it, whatever they came to as a conclusion in this arbitration. The conclusion was at least, that Muawiyah now, he has power there and Ali has nothing to do with Sham. Uh, as I said, others will say, no, it was even more than that. They, they said Khilafah comes to Muawiyah and they started uh, referring to Muawiyah as Amirul Mu'minin now. All right, and it's a very sad point of history. Now, this is the Battle of Safin. The most important part of it to understand Ashura taking place later is the arbitration because this arbitration kept Muawiyah in power. All right, and I'll talk about more of that um, in a second. It keeps Muawiyah in power number one. You have two rulers now in the Muslim empire, totally independent of each other. And he did what he needed to do to destabilize Imam Ali's rule in other parts of the land, of the, of this, of the Muslim lands as well. That's something I'm going to leave for uh, tomorrow's lecture. Uh, for now, we're talking about, um, we need to speak a little bit about a few points an observation and notes on the Battle of Sufin that ended with the arbitration. Yes, the arbitration was horrible, brothers and sisters. It was the worst thing that could happen. Why? Because Muawiyah retained that power and now he's independent. And so if you have him in power, he can do whatever he likes. And this is how slowly, because of Imam Ali, his people being weak, Muawiyah is able to push them slowly aside. And I'll share some of that some of those details, inshallah, in our next lecture. But for now, I have three or four points here very quickly that I want to go through on the Battle of Sufin. Number one, the Battle of Jamal 
took place for the same reasons the Battle of Safin took place, Uthman and the blood of Uthman. And there was like a year of a difference between and a gap between the Battle of uh, Jamal and the Battle of Safin. So the people had time to sit down and think about what had happened in Jamal and understand that it was wrong. And we even said that everyone says, even some of the most extreme uh, Wahhabi sheikhs, you see them, they say, yes, Nadimat, she was regretful that she did such a thing. She was involved in such a thing. People, this was wrong. And the blood of Uthman is not enough of an excuse to go against the Khalifa of your time. So why is it that when Safin happens, no one uses this against them and say, look, you're repeating the same mistake. Why doesn't uh, the wife of the Prophet herself even like try to stop them? I don't know if we have any reports on this. I haven't seen any, uh, but I didn't look too much either. Maybe there are some reports of the wife of the Prophet telling them not to, which if she did, then that's even worse because they're not listening to the wife of the Prophet either. Yes, so either she did tell them not to or she didn't. In both cases, we have a problem because she was after the maslaha of the ummah. She was, for the, she was after the greater good in Jamal, as they say. The Shi'i school of thought won't believe in that. But if that's what she was after, according to the ones who are biased towards Muawiyah, then here also the greater good of the Muslim ummah dictates that she try her best to stop Muawiyah from, you know, doing something like this, but we don't find this in history. Another point and observation here, and is very, very important, is the famous hadith that says that the al-fi'atul baghiyah, the aggressor, the aggressor, the party that is the aggress aggressor, will be the one that kills Ammar one day. We have a hadith, very, very famous hadith. I was actually surprised that we have it this much in the hadith sources, we have it in Al-Bukhari, we have it in Al-Muslim, <clears throat> uh, we have it in Al-Tirmidhi, we have it in Al-Nasai, we have it in Musnad bin Ahmad, uh, Musnad Ahmad bin Hanbal, excuse me, and so on. So like we have this hadith with different chains um, in the, all of these books. And it's interesting how the, more, the, the most extreme version of it is found in Al-Bukhari and Ahmad bin Hanbal. Other books have taken out the last part of this hadith. Now, I don't know the ones who uh, are followers of uh, Muawiyah and those who are biased towards Muawiyah and would like to defend Muawiyah. They might say that this additional part maybe is an addition by somebody else in Al-Bukhari and in Ahmad bin Hanbal. And that's why Muslim and others don't have it. But all in all, you will find the hadith in Al-Bukhari and all these other books which says, and it's cool because when you look it up, the shaykh, when you actually listen to the shaykhs and some of these Wahhabi shaykhs, they'll say that, yes, this is a sahih hadith. What is that hadith? <clears throat> it says that we were building uh, Masjid al-Nabi with the Holy Prophet. Everyone was you know, carrying big boulders, and not boulders, but big bricks for the building and the walls of the, of the masjid. And so as everyone is carrying blocks for the, for the masjid, Ammar bin Yasir is, is carrying two. Everyone's taking them one by one. He's taking them two, with, two by two. And so this is Ammar bin Yasir, brothers and sisters, this companion of Rasulullah who lost his parents under the torment and torture of the mushrikeen of Quraysh in Mecca, who has seen it all, who's been through it all. And he's working this hard. That's how much he loves the Holy Prophet and believes in his message. 
This Ammar bin Yasir, when he's doing such, it says the Prophet says, Wayha Ammar, woe unto Ammar, taktuluhul fi'atul baghiyah. That the fi'ah, the party of baghi and aggression, the, bar, the party that is on the wrong side, the aggressor is going to kill him one day. So what's the story here? What's going on here? How is this hadith important? And it ends with this. And this is the extra part that is not in Muslim, but it is in Bukhari and Ahmad bin Hanbal. It says that the Holy Prophet continued. He said, يَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ وَيَدْعُونَهُ إِلَى النَّارِ Ammar calls them to Jannah while they are calling him to Nar and the hellfire. Wow. This is very, very significant and important here. And so let's talk about this a little bit. It says that um, this I'm going to be sharing from one of the shaykhs that I listened to. So it's not my version here. One of those more extreme ones who for sure is going to be very biased towards protecting and defending uh, Banu Umayyah and, and uh, Muawiyah in particular. He says that yes, this hadith is sahih. And so the story goes like this. In the Battle of Safin, the Battle of Safin, when it was happening, Ammar eventually dies and is killed and becomes Shaheed in the Battle of Safin. The Shaheed part, I'm saying it by the way. He doesn't use the word Shaheed. Um, and so here, the people find out that Ammar has been killed. And a person by the name of Abdullah, the son of Amr bin Al-As, goes to his father Amr, the mastermind and the right-hand man to Muawiyah. He says to him, he says to his father, father, Ammar has been killed. And so Amr bin Al-As says, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raja'un. Okay. So it seems like he's upset about this. Of course, the Shi'i school will not buy this. But anyway. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raja'un. But Abdullah bin Amr bin Al-As tells his father, But father, what about the hadith that says, Wayha Ammar taqtuluhu al-fi'atul baghiyah. The aggressors, the ones on the wrong side will kill him. That means we're on the wrong side. Wow. And so Am bin al-As goes to Muawiyah, tells him, look, Ammar has died. And so Muawiyah says, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. Once again, the Shi'i school of thought will not buy this at all. And so Amr bin al-As tells Muawiyah, according to this account of this shaykh that's speaking, he says that تَقْتُلُهُ الْفِئَةُ الْبَاغِيَةُ The Prophet said, so what's going on here? We're on the wrong side, Muawiyah. Muawiyah says, no, 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 no. See who brought Ammar to the battlefield. Who brought him? Ali ibn Abi Talib. So he's the Fi'atul Baghiyah. Now here, this, the Shaykh that's speaking, that is really one of the ones that is very extreme in defending the people, people like Muawiyah. And even to the extent that he says, don't even say La'na on Yazid, even this Shaykh. He says that this is Ghayru Sahih. This is not right. <laughs> That Muawiyah says Ali is the killer. Why? Because he's the one who brought Ammar. He says, this is wrong. And, that, and that's why when Ali ibn Abi Talib is told that Muawiyah said this, that, that you're the one who is, in, is uh, responsible for the death of Ammar, Ali says, if that's the case, then the Holy Prophet is the one who is responsible for the death of Hamza Sayyidul Shuhada in the Battle of Uhud. Because he's the one who brought Hamza Sayyidul Shuhada. This is not... This is not logic, this is not a reasonable thing to say. And it's not acceptable at all to the extent that even those who defend Muawiyah 
all the time. Here they say, look, it's not, it's not acceptable. All right, so now, what do I want, why did I even talk about all of this? When you listen to these scholars that want to defend Muawiyah, they'll say that, yes, Ammar came. Everyone's waiting to see what's going to happen to Ammar. Is he going to die in this battle? So that we know that they, which side is the right side, which side is the wrong side. Brothers and sisters, this is so naive of us if we're going to look at things like this. That a grand Sahabi, that things are so blurred, that a grand Sahabi, the likes of Ammar bin Yasir, has to be killed for the people to understand which side is the right side, which side is the wrong side. This is, uh, this is very, very illogical and unacceptable. And this shows how important it is that the Holy Prophet had to let the people know what Khilafah after him is all about. This is not your normal ruling of fasting or ruling of Salat and Wudu and these things. This is power, this is authority, this is Khilafah of the Muslim Ummah. And this is why it's so important for the Holy Prophet to give us a clear-cut model of how Khilafah is supposed to work after him. Who is supposed to succeed? How do we govern ourselves? Some might say, but everything went well after the first Khalifa. Well, yes, the first, second Khalifa, whatever. But after that, we see all of this bloodshed happening throughout the ages, even till today. We see how the Abbasids had to kill the, um the Bani Umayyah. How Bani Umayyah had to kill others. Marwan comes to Sham, he has to kill uh, Dahak ibn Qais. Mukhtar is in Kufa. I don't know, Abdullah bin Zubair, Mecca. All of this bloodshed happening because the Holy Prophet has not given us a clear-cut model? No, this is not acceptable. This is not something logical to say. And that is why we believe that the Holy Prophet did give us at least this much that who is to follow after him? If we know who we're supposed to follow after him by name, then that person will tell, can also tell us who's to follow by name and so on and so forth. And this is where we get stuck, brothers and sisters. We have a problem here. And this is where the Shi'i school says, look, when I, say, when I think about things, they just make more sense if the Holy Prophet had not left things just to the Ummah. Or else it's going to come down to Ammar bin Yasir having to get killed. This grand Sahabi has to get killed for people to be able to tell the truth from falsehood. Is that how truth and falsehood works? Truth and falsehood follows logic. Truth and, follow, and falsehood follows our, what our fitra pushes us towards, not whether a, a, a grand sahabi was on this side or that side, so now it can be black and white and we can decide and we can figure things out. But having said all of this, I want us to put all of this aside, right? No matter how important it is, this matter, I want to make another point. But before I make that point, I just want to share what Shahristani, that famous uh, Sunni scholar, says in his book, in the introduction of his book, Al-Milal Wal-Nihal, he says something very important. He says, look, he says, The biggest thing that was disputed was that point of division amongst the Ummah was, was that of leadership, Imamah. What's your reason for saying this? That this is the most disputed uh, matter amongst the Muslim Ummah. إِذْ مَا سُلَّ سَيْفٌ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ عَلَىٰ قَاعِدَ دِينِيَّةِ مِثْلْ مَا سُلَّ عَلَىٰ الْإِمَامَةِ This is because we see that the, the swords were, that were drawn over this matter, which is a religious matter by the way he says, قَاعِدَ دِينِيَّةِ 
It is a religious principle, not just a political one. The Khalifa of Rasulullah is not just making political decisions, brothers and sisters. He represents Rasulullah. He gives fatwas as well and so on. It, this is a qa'ida diniya according to him. Yes? He's not a Mu'tazilite or anything either. They say he's from the Ash'ari school of thought as well. So there's, this is him saying it. I think this is obvious. Everyone can uh, accept this fact that the most bloodshed was over leadership. Who's going to lead? Who's going to have power? Whether it's between Ali ibn Abi Talib and Muawiyah or Al Hassan and Muawiyah Al and Muawiyah or Al Hussein and Yazid or is it after that Mukhtar Abdullah bin Zubair Marwan bin Hakam and then after that all the way Hajjaj bin Yusuf destroys the Kaaba all of these things all the way till the till the Bani Abbas come and then Bani Abbas amongst themselves yeah Abu Muslim al Khurasani kills thousands and thousands and he's killed by his own the people he was fighting for. And then, I don't know, Ma'moon kills Amin, his brother, and all this of Bani Abbas. All of this, he says, look, the bloodshed that happened because of imamah and leadership is more than anything else you find in Islam. And so here, this is why we say this. The Prophet just cannot leave this world without appointing someone, at least. Either give us the guidelines or appoint someone yourself by name because this is such a touchy subject. This Ash-Shahristani, in his book, he's saying this. He says, this is a very important thing. Now, someone might say, oh, he's sounding Shia. No, no, he's not Shia. He's not Shia at all. <laughs> because right after he says all of this, he says, okay, alhamdulillah, the, Allah made it easy, though, for the people. Because Abu Bakr seamlessly came, and uh, he was chosen. And then, you know, after him, uh, Umar was chosen. Yeah, the first couple of three or four is not a big deal. But after that, we see all this bloodshed. Anyway, the point, but having said all of this, the point I want to make is let's put all of this aside and let's talk about this fi'atul baghiyah. If we know, according to this hadith and the story that these shaykhs are telling us, that in that time and at that moment, people remembered that the Prophet had said such a thing, and now we can identify who the baghiyah is then the battle should have stopped right there, brothers and sisters. Like Muawiyah and Amr bin al-As and others, they should have just put down their arms that Ali, we were wrong, you were right, Ammar was killed by us. So here we are and whatever you say goes. Yeah, because the Qur'an says when these two, when, the, uh, when two groups of mu'mineen uh, fight each other, what happens is, that the one who is doing baghi and is the baghi, the fi'a baghiyah, you're supposed to fight them until hatta tafi'a ira amrillah, until they come back to God's command. In other words, they're going against God's command in that moment. So if that's the case, the army of Sham has to put down its weapons and put its hands up instead of putting Qur'ans up, putting their hands up and say, Ali, now we know that you were with the truth because Ammar died and lost his life fighting us. But that's not what happened. And as a matter of fact, when you, you, you expect at least people of today to discuss this matter in this way. Why didn't Muawiyah at least from here on say, okay, I was mistaken. Yes, why didn't he say that? And put his arms down. We don't find that. Rather, what we do find is this, brothers and sisters, that they'll say that Yes, he was wrong, 
But that was some, that was his ijtihad. Well, when you, you do ijtihad, when you, do, you're, when you know you're not wrong. But once you know you're wrong, that's when ijtihad stops and you're going to be questioned for, your, for whatever you did based on whatever you think you should be doing. Because here we know that your ijtihad is done because the Prophet has spoken about you. There is no ijtihad when we have a nas like this, when we have literature like this, a hadith like this that they themselves are accepting. Muawiyah is accepting, Amr bin al-As is accepting. No one said, oh, this is not a hadith. And even till today they say it's a hadith. It's a sahih hadith. But what we find is that the conversation will be diverted. And the discussion that comes up with this hadith, Al-Fi'atul Baghiyah, the discussion is this. Oh, some people, because of this hadith now, they see, they feel that it is okay to do takfir of Muawiyah and the army of Muawiyah. This is not the case. And they will bring Quranic proof for it from the same verses that talk about Al-Fi'atul Baghiyah. And, and, and they'll say that the verses that ensue are talking about two sides that are mu'min and Muslim. So it shows that they're Muslim. You can't do takfir of them. Who cares, brothers and sisters? Let's say they're mu'min. Let's say they are the most zahid, most muttaqi people on earth. But when we, we don't even want to go there. That discussion is not even important. Okay, it's irrelevant right now. What's relevant is now we know who was wrong in the middle of the battle, not eight months later, not seven months later, not 800 years later, 80 years later. No, now during the battle of Safin, we know who's the Baghiyah. Why does it have to continue to arbitration of Quran? The Quran has already spoken. It says, fight the ones who are Baghi so that they return to Amrullah. To come back to the command of Allah, which is the fourth Khalifa. We call him the first Imam, you call him the fourth, fourth Khalifa, come back to him and say that we are sorry, we were mistaken, and we're going to follow you. But no, what we find is the least is that Muawiyah becomes the sole sovereign governor of Sham, and no one can do anything about it anymore. What is going on, brothers and sisters? This is the part where the, 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 the Shia get, uh, they, they're very taken aback, taken very much aback because they're like, okay, what happened here? What happened to the logic? What happened to Rasulullah's hadith and so on and so forth. Um, having said that, that's our second point regarding the battle of Safin. The first one was how Jamal should have been enough for them not to do Safin. The second is Al-Fi'atul Baghiyah. There's a couple more points that I want to mention and then I'm going to end. Or actually one more. And that is that I want to share with you what Imam Ali thinks of the people of Sham. I want to say that when I say the people of Sham, I mean the army of Sham and those who were fighting alongside Muawiyah and Muawiyah himself, of course. You'll find that some people will, will narrate this hadith that they came to Imam Ali, you know, they said, oh, are these people kafir? He says, no. Are they munafiq? He says, no. What are they then? He says, ikhwanuna, baghaw alayna. They are brothers. They are believers, but they have just, they're aggressors though right now. Okay, And so with this they want to point out that yeah, they were still believers. Now, the point about Al-Fi'atul Baghiyah, I said, we, we don't want to discuss whether they were mu'min, kafir, whatever. That's irrelevant for that point of Al-Fi'atul Baghiyah. But now let's talk about this separately. I'm not going to give an opinion of mine or anything like that. I'm just going to read off of Nahj al-Balagha for our Shia brothers and sisters who believe in Nahj al-Balagha. How Ali ibn Talib looks at the Shamites and the army of Sham. And then I will end. It says, this is letter number 58 of Nahj al-Balagha. Right? If we have the hadith that says, Ikhwanuna baghaw alayna, here we have this letter of Nahj al-Balagha, 
where the Imam he says, وَكَانَ بَدْءُ أَمْرِنَا أَنَّ الْتَقَيْنَا بِالْقَوْمِ مِنْ أَهْلِ الشَّامِ He says this is, a, this is how it all started. He's writing this letter to others. He says this is how it all began. We, our group and the group of Sham, they met. وَالظَّاهِرْ أَنَّ رَبَّنَا وَاحِدٌ وَنَبِيَّنَا وَاحِدٌ وَدَعْوَتَنَا فِي الْإِسْلَامِ وَاحِدَةٌ He says, and الظَّاهِرْ الظاهر means on the outside, apparently. This is very important because some people even sometimes use this excerpt to say, look, even in Nahj al-Balagha, Ali ibn Abi Talib is saying we're all on the same page. We just have a difference of opinion on Uthman. No, no, no. Ali says, alayhi salam, he says, الظاهر, it seemed that we're on the same page when it comes to these things. That our Lord is one. That we share the same Lord. That our Prophet is the same Prophet. And that our message for is- in Islam is the same. And our call to Islam is the same. وَلَا نَسْتَزِيدُهُمْ فِي الْإِيمَانِ بِاللَّهِ وَالتَّصْدِيقِ بِرَسُولِهِ وَلَا يَسْتَزِيدُونَنَا That it seemed that when it comes to being Muslim and Islam, that we don't have anything extra over them and they don't have anything extra over us. All of these wavs are wav atifah. So that al-zahir comes before every bit of this of these lines here. So it's as if the Imam is saying, Al-Zahir anna Rabbana wahid. Al-Zahir anna Nabiyyana wahid. All the way till Al-Zahir that we la nastaziduhum fil iman billah wa tasdiq bi rasulihi wa la yastazidunana. Wal-amru wahidun. Everything is one. We're all on the same page. It was, it seemed as such. Illa makhtalafna fihi min dami Uthman. Except for the fact that we have a difference about uh, the death and assassination of Uthman and the killers of Uthman, the blood of Uthman. That's what it would seem like from if you look from outside. But the reality of the matter is something else the Imam is implying in this khutbah. This is what the Imam thinks of the army of Sham and led by Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan. So with this brothers and sisters, the whole battle of Sufin and how it contributes to Ashura taking place because Ashura took place with Bani Umayyah taking power completely and Yazid of all people coming to power. How does that happen? Well, that happens by establishing Muawiyah's power in Sham. Either this, if you're going to be a minimalist, or even more than that, him not only being in charge of Sham completely and it being his sovereign state, but him seeing himself as Khalifatul Muslimin now if you're not going to be a minimalist when it comes to what the outcome of the arbitration was. This is very, very big, brothers and sisters. And all of this owes to what? That turning point in Islamic history, which was the assassination of the third Khalifa. Now, is, is, uh, is uh, Muawiyah going to now sit there and do nothing now that he has more power? No, there is havoc that is wreaked upon uh, the Muslim Ummah after this. And there are other details, inshallah, that I will share tomorrow night. Assalamu ala al-Husayn wa ala Ali ibn al-Husayn wa ala awlad al-Husayni wa ala ashab al-Husayn. Wassalamu alaykum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.